Good evening. My name is Jason. Um, and I work here, and I'm going to preach tonight. Uh, before we get into the sermon, I know we just read the text. Uh, this is what it's about. Do not worry tonight. Um, and I kind of don't want you to forget the text, but I got to say this first real quick. Uh, Lent, the season of Lent starts soon on Ash Wednesday. And um, uh, if you would be interested in working with some staff and other students here on thinking through how we might um, as a group, as a community, um, go through the season of Lent together. And usually what we do at the house is we, we use it as a time uh, to consider how we might um, learn how to employ different spiritual disciplines and find out what the fruit in them are and why God might have asked us to consider doing certain things with our money, our time, our food, our bodies, these sorts of things. So uh, if you're interested in helping um, kind of brainstorm what we can do um, for this season, there's a group of people meeting in Kirsten's office, which is just, if you go down in the hub, down the stairs here, it's in the very, very back left. They'll be meeting after the house to talk about that and we'd love for you to, to join that. So uh, if you don't know where the office is or something, just come find me afterwards. I'll be standing around back here somewhere um, and point you to it. So. Um, as we get into the sermon tonight, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to, it's not rhetorical, I really want you to think about it um, for a minute. It's just going to help, I think, um, frame the rest of our discussion. I want you to think about what it is that you treasure, what it is that you treasure. It's a word that comes up in the text tonight, and I'm going to try to, I'll say a couple different words that get at the same idea, because that's kind of a foreign word for many of us. Um, uh, unless you're a pirate or something. Uh, what do you treasure? What do you hope for? What do you hope for? What do you think? This is, I think, some of the connotation in the text. What do you think would bring you the security, the meaning, and the identity that you really, really long for? What is it that in your heart and in your mind you treasure because you want it so badly or you want to hold on to it so badly or you're not going to let go of it ever? For many of us, it's, and this might help your, your brains, uh, it has something to do with money, or romance, power, some status in life, some place that we get to one day in the future. Somewhere underneath the surface, when somebody says, what do you wanna do with your life? I know on the surface, there's a ton of anxiety that comes from that question, it just plagues this age, it plagues the college time. What do you want to do with your life? Most of us are just like, please don't ask me that question, you know? Uh, but, but somewhere beneath the, the surface level anxiety, there is something that's probably, you're probably afraid to let out. This thing you treasure that you hope one day might happen. What is it that you treasure? What is your heart set on that would bring you security or meaning or identity? Picture it. Picture it. This will help so much if you actually have something in your mind. Daniel, would you put up that first verse for me? Fear not. Jesus has this to say in a parallel passage to the Sermon on the Mount. Through Luke, the gospel writer, he says, Fear not, little children, for it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little children, for it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you don't have to have any fear? That you don't have to have any worry or any anxiety because God wants to give you his kingdom? Statistics would say that we don't believe this, 
The number one, uh, at this point, the number one mental illness in America is anxiety. That's a synonym for many of us for fear. Amongst college campuses, statistics would say uh, at a low estimate, 80%, 80% of college students in America say that they frequently or daily experience overwhelming levels of stress, 80%. Almost half of whom don't seek any help for it. And there's all sorts of sobering statistics that are, are sort of the fruit of our anxiety and our worry that we deal with all the time as we try to cope with our anxiety and our worry. There's something that we long for that we don't think can be provided. There's something that we want. I, I would argue there's some things or something that we treasure. And we, we worry because we may not have it. We worry because we might lose it. And so we seek to find things to manage and manipulate our circumstances. And we try so hard. We put so much effort and so much energy. Worry is that, you know? Like it's so much energy. It's spinning wheels. Like it doesn't ever accomplish anything. But four out of five of you statistically, I don't know how much that number bears out in this room, but my experience leads me to believe it's likely true. And if I'm really honest, I would argue that for most of the other 20%, you're just, you're people who like play it safe by not getting too involved in things. And so you don't have anxiety because you try to say nothing's a big deal, which is still a form of managing and controlling and manipulating your circumstances so that you might not have your treasure encroached upon or that you might one day get it because you're afraid you won't. Do we believe that we have no reason to fear because it's God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom, would we worry so much? Would 80% of us struggle daily almost with anxiety and worry and fear if we believed this? If we believed God is good, do you, maybe it's actually easy for me to ask, do you believe God is good? And for many of you who've grown up in church or if you are following Jesus, you might argue, yes, God is good. So maybe I should say this, do you believe God is good to you? Don't answer it objectively for just a minute. Is God good to you? How good is your Father in heaven? Fear not, Jesus says. And I think we fear. I think we're afraid. We're afraid because we don't think he's that good to us. I quoted uh, this guy last week. I quote him um, a lot, not in sermons, I guess, because his name is funky. Uh, and you'll just know I'm drawn from the same uh, well all the time. But would you put up that quote from Chrysostom for me? I love this guy. Uh, he says this. He says, um, you to whom he gave a soul, for whom he fashioned a body, for whose sake he made everything in creation, for whose sake he sent prophets and gave the law and wrought those innumerable good works, and for whose sake he gave up his only begotten son, you. You. This was written a very long time ago, but do you believe that this could be said about you? that God would think so highly of you that for your sake he made everything in all creation for you? Do you know that he wants to give you, Jesus says, the desires of your heart, that he has promised to supply your every need? And if you did, would you still treasure what you do? If you believed what Jesus said, would you worry so much? Tonight, what I want is for you to hear his heart his heart for you not to worry and why he says we don't have to 
that we don't have to be afraid. Jesus is going to warn us about what isn't good for us. And for many of us, we might take offense at that. We don't like to be warned. We don't like to be told what's good and bad for us. But Jesus sits as the high king of all creation, the very one by whom, for whom, and through whom everything was made. And he's gonna warn us a couple of times. I just wanna encourage you, he's warning you for your own good and he's warning me for my own good and I hope in this you hear his heart for you and you hear him acknowledge your heart too. Let's pray and I wanna get into some of this text, all right? Father, may your spirit be on the loose in this room. Comforting, convicting, bringing your word to bear on minds and hearts. May you be faithful to all the promises in the text that we're about to read. Please, please, please. Help us all here to believe because we doubt so much that we don't need to fear because it is your good pleasure to bring us the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we're looking at uh, Matthew chapter six in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is a, a part of a, a two chapter or three chapters, five, six, and seven in Matthew of one collected sermon of Jesus. And we're walking through it asking the question, what does the kingdom of God look like? Jesus talks a lot about us entering his kingdom. He talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God all the time. What does it look like? And in this sermon, we get to see a picture of the heart of the father and the kinds of people that make up his kingdom, of the way of life in his kingdom, of how to enter his kingdom. These kinds of things, right? So we're gonna look at this from Matthew chapter six. Would you put up that first section? Jesus says this in verse 19 through 21. It was read, we're not gonna read the whole thing. I'm gonna skip through some sections tonight, but I wanna focus on some key things, all right? So this is uh, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, <laughs> there your heart will be also. All right, keep that up for a minute. Uh, this is first and foremost a warning. Do not store up for yourself, or depending on your translations, uh, you know, uh, I warn you, it might even say, do not do this. Do not store up for yourself treasures. I'm warning you. And we should hear it like that. And what is his warning? What is the warning that he's giving us? It's not just a command not to store up stuff. The warning is that if you do, if you store up treasures on earth, moth, rust, and thieves have access to them. Nature and time and other people. These, these things that you store, these treasures that you have on earth are breakable, ageable. I don't know what the word is, right? These, these things we can lose. These things can fall and crumble before us. I'm warning you, if your treasure is in these things, they cannot last. They will not last. He knows this. He knows that all of our earthly treasures are fleeting at best. One of my favorite stories about a couple who knew the reality of this um, uh, it's, I, I got this story from um, the autobiography of, of their marriage, actually. Um, this guy named Sheldon Van Alken, he and his wife bought this car. It was the first brand new car they ever bought in their marriage. 
first brand new car. Everything was sort of a junker before and they bought this brand new car. And the first thing they did when they brought it home is they got a bottle of champagne and they went outside with a hammer and they put a big old dent in the back of their car. Kid you not. Why would they do that? They just bought a brand new car. Why would they do that? Have any of you, I mean, have any of you ever seen the van that I drive around in? Okay, um, I told the New York mission trip team that we're taking that up to New York and there was panic in the room. Uh, <laughs> uh, my dash looks like a Christmas tree right now. It's terrible. And there's like, I got into an accident recently. Somebody rear-ended me and the insurance adjuster said, there's, quote, there's damage on all four corners of your car. <laughs> How did this happen? And I was like, oh, different things, different things. Uh, I didn't get a lot of money. Anyway, um, anyway uh, I don't care about what happens to my car at this point. I got the van used, we put a new transmission in it, but I mean, for real, I feel like we got to steal on this sucker and I will drive that into the ground. Like, I don't care, I've, I've, uh, maybe a month ago, I was backing up out of a garage and I've actually never been driving and at fault for an accident. This probably makes me sound terrible, but I feel the need to defend myself a little bit. Um, I was backing up out of this parking space and I hit this pole, like as I was backing out on my, on my left. And so like the mirror's wrecked and there's this dent on the side and that kind of stuff. And I was like, Oops, and I pulled forward. And if you look at like the driver's side door, I went home that night with a giant crowbar and was like popping out the side of the car to make sure the door can open and close. If you look at it right now, see my mirror's gone and there's like all these dents on the side. The total emotional and spiritual effect that had on, had on me was, whoops, forward. Okay, now go back. That's it. Why? Why? Because I, the car doesn't own me. I don't treasure the van. It's a functional, I'm thankful for it. I really am, y'all. Like, I, I treasure probably having two cars. I probably do. Like, if we lost it, that would suck for a while until I figured out some other situation. But, but I don't care about it. You can borrow it. I don't care if something falls on it. I parked it under a tree the other day that had a bunch of branches falling off, and I was like, well, well I mean, I don't know. So I don't want somebody else to have to park there, you know? Uh, really, that's what I was thinking. And I was like, it's just a van. I mean, that's the way I think. So Sheldon Van Alken and his wife go out by this brand new car, brand new, and they put this big old dent on it. If I bought, I mean, this is my stage in life, right? I could buy a brand new Honda Odyssey. Oh my goodness, that's what I'd love. I told my wife, my wife's terrified right now because if I sell my other car, we're gonna get a second minivan, okay? I'll be the only person in town with two minivans. Uh, and uh, so my dream right now, the thing I treasure probably is a brand new like Honda Odyssey or something. I think she wants another kind of car. I don't know which kind she wants, but um, anyway. Um, but if I got a brand new van, honestly, I just got it yesterday, last week, even last month. And it's pristine. I mean, we're talking like the mileage on that sucker is only three digits or something, you know, like something really, really new. And I'm backing out of that parking garage and I hit a pole. You think I go, whoops. No, the first thought in my head is what am I going to tell Anna? Okay, that's the first thought in my head. The second thought is some cussing of some kind, probably. Uh, I'm probably really, really mad at what I just did because I, I'm treasuring this thing now. I'm taking, so I'm taking care of it. It's like, it's like that Lord of the Rings ring deal, my precious sort of treasuring, you know, kind of thing. And we do this with new stuff. We do this with new stuff. I had a coat the other day that, that I've had for 10, all my clothes are like 10, 15 years old. Uh, I had a coat the other day that, that it was made of wool and we threw it in the dryer. And so now it's a medium instead of a large. So if somebody wants a really, really nice Banana Republic medium that says large, uh, I got one for you. Um, it's, a, it's a really good coat. But I was like, ah, dang it. That sucks. And that's it. That's like all I said because I've had it for 10 years. I don't treasure it. 
So I identify, I identify with this thing. The, when, after we got married, the first nice thing my wife and I got was a 40-inch plasma TV. I remember walking it up the stairs to my house with a friend, thinking he better not drop it. I'll be super angry. And then the second thought came into my head. Crazy, I wouldn't think that about anything in my house. We could have dropped anything and I'd have been like, dude, don't worry about it. He drops his TV, I'm gonna be like, you, uh, mad, I'll be mad, you know? <laughs> we put it in the house and all of a sudden like, uh, okay, actually that got stolen, uh, insurance settlement, uh, and then I got a 50-inch TV. Why'd I get a 50-inch TV? Why'd I get a 50-inch TV? Is the 40-inch wasn't good enough? When I got it, I was so excited. It, this thing was the most satisfying TV I'd ever seen. It was like tiny. I didn't have to, when I was in college, <laughs> uh, I had a 27-inch TV that I actually put, it was a big giant thing that I could barely carry myself. I had to have two people help usually, one person help usually. And I put it in the backseat of my car and hauled it to a friend's house to play Halo with him. I'm a total nerd, okay? Uh, I mean, it was massive. And here I'm carrying this 40-inch TV and it's like nothing. You know, I mean, it's crazy. I was so satisfied. It got stolen and Anna's like, well, are you going to get a new TV? And I was like, yeah, but I think I'm going to get a 50-inch one this time. And I put it up on my wall and I was kind of embarrassed. Like I hung it up in my house above this like, area in my living room. And I looked at it and I was like, man, people are going to think I make so much money, and, you know, or something like that. And, and, and my brother, uh, who's a lot younger than I am and is in college, told me he just got a 55-inch TV. And I was like, I need a 60-inch TV. Uh, okay. Like, and, and I say that in every single one of you. It may not be about a TV, but you know what I'm talking about. I used to work on boats. One of my jobs, one of the many jobs that I've had is I worked on boats for a summer. I cleaned them on, in the, on this pier area. And there's a thing in the boat world, and I kid you not, it's actually a phrase or a word. It's called two-foot-itis. That's actually a thing for boat people. It's the, it's the continual desire to always have a boat two feet longer. It's, it's actually true. That's an actual thing. You talk to somebody who owns a boat and every single one to a person says, man, I love my 38-foot bayliner. Oh my gosh, but man, a 40-foot one would be fantastic. Every single one, two feet, it's a thing. It's a real thing. I want you to think about the kinds of things that you desire, or you go back and think about the things that you treasure. The things that are on your heart that you long for so much that you think would bring about security if you just had this, if I only had that, if I just won Powerball, if I just had a girlfriend or boyfriend, if I just had a title, if I could just tell stories like that guy or could be funny like that girl, if I just had the group of friends that they have, if I just had a family one day and I could be a dad or a mom, what are the things that you treasure? If you had them, do you think they would satisfy you? Really? When has that ever happened for any of us? That we've, we got the birthday present and we never needed another one again. That we ate the dinner that we were dreaming about and I was so satisfied, I didn't crave that and more. The other day, I'm not kidding, I have an uncle that's involved in this dream dinner thing that like they, they send meals out. I hope he doesn't hear this. <laughs> God, I don't think he listens to any of this stuff. Thank God for right now. Uh, so he sends me these dinners and I think they're probably really fantastic. He sent me six uh, six course, not six course, six person meals, okay, like for six people, six of them, free, just, he just wanted me to review them honestly, so I got this huge frozen cooler of like six family meals, I was so excited, every single meal we ate, I was like, Anna, your food is way better, which, 
is true, and I'm sure she loved to hear, but I, I was like, am I so dissatisfied that dream dinners I'm giving away? Dream dinners. Like, it's, it's apparently ridiculous. I gave a lot of these meals to somebody else because I actually got a second round of them. <laughs> anyway, whatever. Uh, and I gave, like, three of them away. And the people that got those meals like, oh, my gosh, this is so good. And I'm like, my standards, holy crap. What's, and look, there's nothing wrong with me. It's actually wonderful probably that I love my, the way my wife cooks food and, and the kinds of meals that we eat at home. And I, I love that kind of stuff. But how often are we satisfied and it lasts? Or do we just have in virtually every place in our life a two-foot-itis sort of thing? Just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. And Jesus knows all of it, all of it, nature and time and people will make these things fleeting. Jesus knows that. He knows that even if we got it, it would destroy. And here's what he knows that will terrify some of us even more. Those things that we treasure most, we might never get. which sounds terrifying if that's the one thing that really would satisfy you. But what if it's not? What if it's not and you spend your entire life gunning for it only to find out that what you really want is a 60-inch TV? That what you really want is to marry somebody else? That what you really want is to, is to not be lonely, but you're laying next to this person in bed and you're lonelier than you've ever been? Or you get the title at work but nobody understands or knows? Or you, and, and look, I'm saying a bunch of negative stuff. You go on a wonderful, wonderful vacation and you have a great, great time. And then you come home and you sit on your couch. Now what? Because most of life is lived on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and just days, daily living. What will satisfy you? Really? This is so hard, I think, for many of us to hear and to swallow. Jesus is saying it precisely because it's true and it's hard. Why does he care so much about warning us about this sort of thing? And I think it's because of what he says here. There your heart will be also. Our hearts are wrapped up in all of these things that we treasure so much. He cares about you. He cares about your heart enough. If your heart is wrapped up in this thing and, moth and moths and rust and thieves break in and steal or destroy this sucker then your heart is also broken and destroyed. If that's where your heart is, and he cares about your heart, he wants to warn you. Fear not, little children, he says, for it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And what's so surprising about this particular section of this, this sermon, I think, is that I expect him, and it's in verse 20, which the verses aren't listed here, but it's where he says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Okay, that's where he says that. That's so surprising because I think what we expect in our world is what's called asceticism, the, the doing without things, the lack of things. It's a very Buddhist idea. That, you know, the Buddhist idea is to, is, to, is to find sort of peace by rooting out all desire. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am going to lift up desire like crazy and I'm still going to give you peace. You don't have to get rid of everything you want. And so Jesus doesn't just say, do not store up treasures on earth. He says, store up treasures. The energy, the effort that you're putting into treasuring something great, do it. But what are you treasuring? What is the thing? That's the, this fascinating, he goes more into this later at the very end, okay? But that, that's, the, that's the thing. 
Last week, Jesus taught us to check that we're doing things for the right audience. He knows us so well that he knows that every single one of us wants attention of some, we want to be known and seen. Attention is probably too broad and, and, and uh, basic a word. We want to be known and recognized and seen for who we really are. And he knows that. And he knows that because we don't trust him, we go out looking for, I want you guys to see me and recognize me and know me. I want the accolades and the attention and the fame from you. And Jesus says, you, you need it from the Father because if you get it from everybody else, you're going to get your reward and it's not going to satisfy you. It'll leave you wanting. Your father sees you in secret and will reward you. Do it for him. He was going after who we do all of this life in front of. Whose attention are we doing this for? And now he's coming after a deeper thing, which is our motives. Why are we doing stuff in the first place? Why are we living out our lives? What is the thing we treasure? What is it that we want most? He's coming after our motives. It's where our heart is. What is Jesus, I gotta answer this before we move on quick. What does Jesus mean by storing up treasures in heaven? I skipped over this like three or four times in my study because I was like too hard of a question to answer. It's too like out there somewhere, you know? But quite frankly, it's really simple and it terrifies me a little bit, but of course this is the answer. How do you store up treasures in heaven? It's the opposite of acquiring, which is what all of us are doing, right? Do you guys know the religion of our age is consumerism? It just is, okay? It, it, 100% is defined differently. Different Christian theologians and pastors, one would say consumerism, one would say it's the religion of acquiring things, one would say uh, it's the religion of success by accumulation. People would word it differently. But there's this notion in our culture, do you know our whole economic system is driven by you must eat, you must buy and feed electronics and clothes and food and new and new and new. And we even have things like new and improved phrases, which doesn't even make sense to put new and improved together but we, we, we've just drunk the Kool-Aid. And so we'll do it. And our whole economic system, when, when the economy is a wreck, the answer is, please, everybody buy things. We've banked on that. It is the religion of our age. It's what brings meaning and purpose and identity to our nation. Consume, buy, acquire. What does it mean to store up treasures in heaven? It means to give. It means to recognize that everything God has ever given you is to give away. God gave me money, it's to give. He gave me a gift of telling stories that I should tell those stinking stories. He gave me a house, I should share it. He gave me, I don't care what it is, all of it is for others. He put his word, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, God puts his word into the mouths of men in order that they might share it. Everything is for others. It's for you first, but for you to share. Even my marriage. Now, you don't get my wife and you don't get me. We get each other. But I am to share me with her. And she is to share herself with me. And we together, our marriage is not supposed to be this self-focused thing. Our marriage is supposed to be something that's for others too, to share. Whatever we have is not for us, it's for us to give. This is what it means to store up treasures in heaven. We come back to that in a second, because right after this, Jesus has a comment where he talk, he takes us a little deeper. He talks about our eye and our body. And what he's saying is whatever we treasure, it ends up becoming this goal for us. And whoever we are inside, our heart is filled by it. And if it's dark, our hearts are dark. If it's light, our hearts are light, but what will bring us light? He's just taking it deeper and deeper and saying the futility of the treasures on earth are so dramatic and so stark, you must know. You must know that they will end. They will rot. 
and break and get stolen or be destroyed, all of it. All of it, all of it, all of it. And then he says this, and you can put up the next verse, Daniel, that'd be great. He says, you cannot serve two masters. Because I think what happens a lot of times when we're warned is we try to just take our foot off the gas pedal a little bit. I try to go, well, okay, I'll slow down on that. I still really want it. And I'm gonna work for that in my spare time. And Jesus goes, no, 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 you can't. Jesus sees all of, all of everything divided into two categories, creator and creation. That's it. That's it. You can only serve one or the other. That's not, you can try to serve both. You can only serve one or the other. Or to use his other words, you can only treasure one or the other. That can be terrifying. If I hear him, are you telling me, Jesus, that I need to give up treasuring all these things? That even in something which is good, because Jesus is not talking about you shouldn't treasure bad things, I could treasure my marriage or my kids. But my marriage will one day end. I will one day die. My kids, I cannot protect them from everything in this world, no matter how hard I try. My kids might rebel against me and turn, God forbid, I might lose one of my kids before I die. Why in the hell would I ever want to think about that? But it's true. I don't know what's coming. And Jesus is warning me, saying, Jason, if your heart is there, if your heart is there, it will be full of darkness and you'll lose it one day. And there's a part of me, he's not done preaching. And we got to stick this out to the end. But at this point, there's a part of me that, that sees the futility in what he's talking about and the wisdom of what he's talking about. I understand, Jesus, the futility in treasuring earthly things. I get it. I still want those things, though. And you're telling me to give them up. And there's grace in what follows. I gotta, I, I gotta have you hold on to your questions if you have some at that moment because he's gonna come back to that. But there's grace in what happens next. He says in Matthew 6, 25, he says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, about what you will eat or drink, about, what, about your body, what you wear. It's not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes. So on one level, he's agreeing with me, right? Like, is not life more important than these things, than all these things that you treasure all the time? Isn't life more than all that? Food is good. Clothes are good. Marriage is very, very good. Really is that all of life, is all of life summed up in any of these things? For no, no, it's not summed up in, all of life is not summed up in that stuff. But he makes this comment that I think is so full of grace where he says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. He just said there's two options, God or everything else. God or money is how it's often summarized. God and possessions is really probably how we should translate that. But there, there's only two things that you can serve, God or other. And he says, he assumes that we're gonna see his wisdom and we're gonna choose God because that's our only other option. There's grace in his assumption here in the sermon. Because he goes, well, therefore, don't worry about your life. Why is he saying don't worry about your life? Because he's actually assuming that you have heard and you're listening to him and you're following God now and you're treasuring God. He's assuming that you as a listener to him preaching are making the decision in the middle of him preaching to treasure God instead of other things. And he goes, then don't fear. Then don't fear. Maybe you're not there yet, 
but I'm, my heart is melted by Jesus' grace and his assumption of what we're going to do in response to him. I think he has some very comforting things to say in what follows. Um, I guess let me ask you this. Or I'm just gonna summarize some of what follows. Uh, some of us might be saying when Jesus says, is not life more than food and clothing, we might be saying, isn't food and clothing still important? Yes, yes it is. And he goes through a whole thing that was read earlier. The birds of the air, they're fed. They have everything that they need. And we don't see them saving up for retirement. We don't see them freaking out. And they work like all the time, but we don't see them freaking out. And they're taken care of just fine. And the flowers of the field, the lilies of the field are more beautiful and more radiant, clothed better than Solomon in all of his glory. And they aren't spinning uselessly, wondering what's happening tomorrow. And if God takes care of these things, how much more will he take care of you when he has made everything in all creation for your sake? If we can see how he provides, and then this is a, you guys, this is a biblical understanding that some of us may not agree with. The, the people that wrote the Bible and Christians throughout history are assuming God's work in everything. And everything. They see him everywhere. And Jesus does too. He sees God at work feeding birds and making flowers beautiful even today. And he assumes if God, he tells us, if God cares about those things but cares about you so much more, why are you so worried? You are more than these things. For your sake, he made all of creation. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So if he cares about these things, why are you worried? And instead of worrying, he says this. You can put that next verse up. Uh, seek first. He says this near the end of this uh, part of the sermon. He says, seek first his kingdom, seek first God's kingdom, the Father's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom. Once again, Jesus doesn't say, therefore, don't worry, and it's just the absence of things. If you've ever tried, I was talking to a friend yesterday about this, like if you, or, or actually this morning, if you've ever tried to cut something out of your life without replacing it with something else, it's impossible. So you can imagine sort of anything in our life that we desire or treasure is like a plant that we pulled out of the ground and there's like a hole there and we need to fill it with something. This works, this is true with anything, y'all, with anything. I mean, I could be standing in front of the freezer at night wanting ice cream and I just go, don't eat ice cream, don't eat ice cream. But if I don't give myself something else to do, I'm just gonna be pacing back and forth. I'm gonna like go to the bedroom, go to the living room. I'll come back in front of the freezer. I'm like, don't eat ice cream, don't eat ice cream. And I'll do that and I'll come back. This is my struggle, okay, every night. But that's uh, uh, why my medium doesn't fit. Uh, anyway, um, but, but, but that, that's a silly, petty sort of thing. I mean, maybe not, but, it, but I think it's a relatively petty thing. But this is true for anything, for, for sin patterns in our life, for relationships. This happens so much with people who break up with each other who try so hard to have good boundaries after a breakup, but I'm not actually supplanting that with something good and healthy. There's just a gaping hole in my life of time and finances and, and, and certain habits of ways we hang out together and these sorts of things. And I'm not actually assuming something else there. And Jesus doesn't say like that. He doesn't say, don't fear uh, or don't worry anymore. And that's it. He tries to steer our desire, take all the efforts that we spend seeking other things and say, seek me, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And we know early on in the sermon, Jesus said that the kingdom of God, 
he assumes that the kingdom of God is the desire of our hearts. He's been preaching about it. He starts to teach about it. And he makes this comment. He says, "Um, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's assuming that the kingdom of heaven is desirable for us. And what needs to happen in order for us to enter into the kingdom? Our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. And so here we have Jesus saying that you desire the kingdom. The people he's teaching are people who are following him, wanting to follow him. You desire the kingdom already. Desire his righteousness too. This is the means to get into the kingdom. Now they're both his. And they're both his to give freely. And he does. One church father would argue that God's righteousness is the gift that he gives to everybody who has faith in seeking him. Do you know the Bible promises that everyone who seeks him will find him? Everyone. He is that good. I don't care how good your seeking is. I don't care how sophisticated or how theologically sound your seeking is. God himself would say, I will have anyone who will come after me. Anyone. So he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And because of what else I know, it's a done deal. Because I know the promises of God, if you seek him, you will find him. You will. And it's really crazy. The next line there is so nuts. He doesn't just say, forget about food, forget about clothing. He says, stop worrying about them and treasure God. He doesn't say forget. He says, stop worrying and treasure God. And then I'm gonna throw in all the other stuff anyway. One Christian says that what God demands with his left hand, he gives with his right. And that's not just a game. It's not a game for us. He's doing that for us because he knows if we treasure these things and we don't receive them just as gifts, they will break our hearts. Absolutely let us down and dissatisfy us. He wants to throw everything in just because he's good and he lavishes good gifts upon his children. And he finishes his whole point in Matthew 6 by telling us this, just take it one day at a time. All this worry, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. I'm gonna add everything to you and just take it one day at a time. That's all we have. We don't even have the promise of tomorrow, so just worry about today. Tomorrow's got enough worries of its own. What do you need to do right now? We'll deal with tomorrow then. Seek my kingdom and my righteousness today and see if I do not provide for everything you need. All right, as we end, one final note. Jesus is up to something in the middle of this. One of the questions that comes out of this, uh, this sermon to me is what do we do about world hunger? What do we do about people that don't have that? Jesus, you've promised, you say the Father clothes and feeds people who are hungry and naked. You say these kinds of things, so what are you doing? Last week I said that one of the things Jesus is trying to do is free us from the oppression of human opinion. And I think in this sermon what we find is that Jesus is trying to free us from the slavery of self-security and satisfaction. Because until I stop acquiring and demanding everything from me, I'm never gonna give to you. Jesus cares a ton. Here's the thing that you gotta realize. It's not safe for you to worry about your food and your clothes and everything. It's totally safe for you to worry about mine. It's not safe for you to look out for your own needs all the time and to demand them and acquire them and possess them and treasure them. It's totally safe for you to help everybody else, for you to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and let the poor into your house and free people from slavery. That's totally okay, but you will never be freed to do that 
until you serve the good master and not the other one and not the other one. Jesus wants his people, this is the heart of the father in all this. He wants to give and provide for his people richly and then he wants his people to go provide richly for everybody else. This is what he wants to do. This is what he wants to do. We sit around worrying and toiling and spinning and anxious all day because we do not believe that it's his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. He's promised that. If you're not little children, it's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe that. And I know, uh, I know Father, that just saying uh, that we need to respond to you today is not necessarily helpful if we don't have ideas or know exactly what to do. So would you provide um, your spirit's wisdom, bringing names to our mind, activities to our mind, things that we might do to seek after your righteousness and your kingdom first more than anything else. And may we hear loudly in our ears and our minds and our hearts that you promise to provide us everything we need. As we sing to you now, um, I ask that your spirit would help us to believe, help our unbelief. Would you comfort us with the truth of your promises? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.